Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, to the book that we're working through verse by verse, and we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, and we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his own inspired word. Well, this morning we're continuing our studies in 1 Corinthians. And we come to a section where the Apostle Paul delivers a final blow to the consciences of the Corinthians to expose the sinfulness of their sin. He does it in such a way to end once and for all this sinful tendency in the Corinthians to elevate one preacher above the other. You remember the problem. The church had divided into factions around the personalities of the preacher. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 12, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter. And it seems significant to me that in a church plagued by problems, theological, moral, and pastoral, that before Paul deals with any of those issues, he devotes the first four chapters to the problem of division. With such seriousness did Paul view the subject of division, it's the very first issue in the epistle that he deals with, and he devotes almost four chapters to it. Now, as his argument reaches a crescendo, he drives his point home with uh, force and clarity. And I want you to notice three things this morning. First of all, the problem identified. In this section, Paul puts his finger on the root cause of all the division that blighted the testimony of the Corinthian church. On three occasions in chapter 4, Paul accuses them of pride. Look at verse 6, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. The NIV translates that, then you will not take pride in one man against the other. In verse 18, he says, some are arrogant. That's the same word. In verse 19, he says, and I will find out not the talk of uh, those arrogant people, but their power. Same word. In fact, it's the same word on three occasions, and the authorized version each time translates it as puffed up. 
The word Paul uses comes from the Greek word for bellows. We don't see many bellows today except at the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum, but that device for pumping air into or at something else. Now, the Corinthians, it seems, were pumped up, inflated, swollen with pride, and it was their pride that was the cause of the division in the church. Now, pride is one of the most deadly of all sins. It's stronger in some cultures than in others, particularly in Asian cultures, where to lose face is a very big thing, but it's present in all cultures. It was pride that put Nebuchadnezzar out of his mind. It was pride that put Saul out of his kingdom. It was pride that put Adam out of the garden. It was pride that put Lucifer out of heaven. In fact, it was Robert Murray McShane who believed that pride was the root cause of all other sin, the root cause of all other sin, the originator and cultivator, he says, of all sin. Why does a middle-aged man disgrace himself by getting involved in an adulterous relationship? Because he wants to feel that he can still attract the opposite sex. Why does a woman put her hand in the till at work and rifle it so that she can appear better dressed, perhaps, than others around her? Why does a child rebel against his parents, me, my, and I? That's the reason. Pride is the originator and the cultivator of much sin, if not all sin. All the sins, he says, of heathendom and the sins of Christendom is but an outgrowth of this one root, God dethroned and yourself enthroned at the center of your heart. And here Paul would tell us that all the division, the rancor and fighting among the church members sprang from proud hearts. Not loyalty to their preferred preacher, not doctrinal disagreement or difference or spiritual responsiveness to the preaching, but pride, pride, pride. Look at the sarcasm that Paul employs describing these Corinthians in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. These people were just full of themselves, puffed up, pumped up on pride. And it was pride that gave rise to the division in the church. It wasn't simply because they preferred one man's teaching over another, or they felt indebted to one rather than the other. They, that was just an excuse. Their hearts were pumped up, puffed up with pride, and they became defensive of their own positions. The meaning of pride basically is, I'm for me. I'm for me. And when anyone is pulling just for himself in a church, the harmony of that church will be torn apart. John Calvin, you remember in his commentary on Ezekiel, describes the human heart as a, an idol factory. And the, the main idol that the human heart produces is an image of oneself. Years ago, there was an article in the Times discussing the reason for all the problems in the world and it invited correspondence uh, on the issue, and they received a, a letter from that well-known uh, writer and commentator, which read like this, Dear Sir, I am yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. Dear Sir, 
I am. That's the reason, that's the, the root of all the difficulties in, in the world and in the church, those three possessive pronouns, me, my, and I. And we can dress division up as principle, but often it's just a result of pride. So much division is a result not of jealousy for God's glory, God's honor, and God's reputation, but for our glory, our honor, and our reputation. The root of the the problem in Corinth was pride. Pride had infiltrated and captivated the hearts of the Corinthians. The problem identified. The second thing I want you to notice are the principles violated. Having identified uh, the root cause of the problem, Paul goes on to list three great principles that they had violated by their pride. First of all, the teaching of Scripture. Look at what he says there in verse 6, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. The authorized version says not to think of men above that which is written. Now, commentators disagree exactly what uh, Paul is referring to when he says that which is written. Some think he's referring to what he has just written, but most tend to agree that Paul is referring to the the great body of Scripture in the Old Testament, which was the Bible, of course, of the New Testament church, since the New Testament hadn't yet been written. It is the repeated testimony of the Old Testament that the most godly of God's servants have always been the most humble. When Abraham was interceding on behalf of Sodom in Genesis 18, he said, I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. When Jacob was afraid that Esau was about to attack him, he prayed in Genesis 32, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. When God commanded Moses to go before Pharaoh in Exodus 3, Moses said, Behold, I cannot speak. For I have never been eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant. For I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And when God called Gideon in Judges 6 and verse 15, he said, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And we could go on and on. The repeated testimony of the Old Testament is that God's servants were characterized by this great sense of their own personal unworthiness. You find that same note in the New Testament. John the Baptist declared that he wasn't worthy to untie the sandals of the incarnate Christ. And when one of his disciples came and complained that Jesus' influence was growing and his was declining and he was being eclipsed by the new kid on the block, he said of Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. It's the repeated testimony of Scripture that the godliest of God's servants have always been the humblest of God's servants. And Paul gathers all that revelation of the Word of God together, and he says to the Corinthians, not to go beyond what is written. Be scriptural, be biblical, he says, and so be humble. It's not the arrogant, self-assertive, overconfident preacher that you should admire, but the humble, self-effacing man of God. 
Four times in the New Testament, you have this statement made in different, slightly different forms, but the same thing, humble yourselves in the sight of God and He will lift you up. That humility comes before exaltation. A proud Christian is as much a contradiction as a humble devil. The principles violated the testimony of Scripture. That's the first principle. The second is this, the nature of grace. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here Paul takes uh, the Corinthians to the whole issue of grace. And he says pride runs contrary to grace. He asks three questions. The first being, who sees anything different in you? Or as the NIV has it, for who makes you different than anyone else? Or who makes you to differ, says the authorized version? Who made the Corinthians any different from the superstitious pagans around them? Who enabled them to climb out of the cesspool of moral filth that was associated with Corinth and begin to live a new life? Who established a church of God's people in the darkness of that society? And the answer is, of course, God. And God did it, not because they deserved it, not because they merited it, not because they earned it, but He did it in grace. And all that they had received was a gift from Him. So He asked the question then in verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast about it? Do you see what he's doing? All that these Corinthians were, and all that these Corinthians had, was given to them by God. So they had absolutely nothing to boast about. It was all of God's grace. Remember, God's grace is getting what you don't deserve. Salvation, says B.B. Warfield, is a pure gratuity from God. It's not because you deserved it. It's not because you earned it. It's not because you merited it. It's because God has given it to you in grace. Those words for who sees anything different in you, or as the NIV has it, who made you to differ, came home to me rather forcefully when we went to Bangor to take up the pastor than Bethany Baptist, my hometown. And I was walking through the town one day, and I, I, I met a friend and uh, we started to reminisce about some old school friends. And there was one called Louis. He, he was called Louis after the actor that um, portrayed the Incredible Hulk because he was just huge. You know, he, had a, uh, he was six foot. That's his chest measurements. You know, six, he was absolutely huge in first form. And I said, well, how's Louis doing? Oh, he's dead. And uh, what about Gary? Ah, Gary's in prison. And what about Frankie? Oh, Frankie's an alcoholic. And what about Alan? And then he sort of laughed and he says, oh, Alan, he's on his fourth marriage. These were fellas that I ran about with at school. Who made you to differ? Who intervened in my life and brought me out of that situation and made me different? Was it because I was better than him? No. God, God, who made you to differ? God. There is nothing to be proud about because all that we have and all that we are 
is from God. And it's everything. The salvation that we enjoy, the gifts that we exercise, the influence we have, all, all of it comes from God. How can you boast when all that you have that's worth boasting about is from God? These Corinthians, you see, did not appreciate the grace of God, the nature of grace. Grace not only makes you gracious, but grace makes you humble because that's the nature of grace, getting what you don't deserve. So you see, boasting, pride, not only violates biblical principles, but grace principles. It runs contrary to the grace of God. All that we have is a gift from Him. The principles violated, the teaching of Scripture, the nature of grace, the hope of the future. Look at what he says there in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I notice that little word already. Paul's being sarcastic here. And he says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become kings. The authorized version translates it as now. Now you are full. Now ye are rich. You see, what these Corinthians were suffering from was what theologians call an overrealized eschatology. Now, eschatology is the, the doctrine of the last things. Theology is the study of God. Eschatology is the study of the last things. It's a study, the study of heaven and the second coming of Christ. And these, these Corinthians had an overrealized eschatology. They were living their lives expecting the blessings of the there and then, here and now. They thought that they were in heaven already, that they had become kings, that they were rich. It's one of the great promises of the second coming that we will reign with Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 that if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. That's the great blessing of, of glory, reigning with Christ, of entering into the fullness of our, our inheritance. But you see, these Corinthians were living as if they were already reigning. They were acting as if they already had arrived. But it was Paul's conviction that the cross must precede the crown. He looked forward to a day coming when the persecution, the batterings, the depression, the grief, the heartache, the sickness, the sorrow, the sheer slog of being a Christian in a hostile world would end. But he understood that heaven was in heaven. And that as Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. Now these Corinthians felt their need of nothing. They had all that they wanted. They were rich. They had become kings. But Paul says you shouldn't expect the blessings of heaven here and now. And that's the great fault in 21st century evangelicalism. An over-realized eschatology. People expect all the blessings of heaven without the hardship of living in a fallen world. And they're flabbergasted and they're taken back and they begin to question and doubt when hardship comes into their lives. But he promised no less, as the hymn says. You've got to remember that God does promise our labors will end. He does promise we will be rewarded for our work 
and uh, we will ultimately reign with Christ. But not here. Not here. And these Corinthians, with their pride, self, sufficient hearts misunderstood the promises of the gospel if we endure with him we will also reign with him and that led them to become proud self-confident and arrogant the principles violated the teaching of scripture the nature of grace the hope of glory the problems identified the principles violated the last thing i want you to notice is the position illustrated in verses 9 to 13 paul goes on to show the true position of the world in relation to the Christian and how the Christian is to be treated in the world, what life is truly like for the Christian in reality. And he does that by setting forth the life of the apostles, his own experience. And he describes the apostles' position in three ways. Remember, he's trying to puncture their their pride. He's trying to show them what it's really like to live in a fallen world, that we shouldn't expect to reign as kings. We should expect hardship and difficulty. And he says about the apostles that they're spectacles, that they're subject to ridicule. They're, they suffer. They endure hardship. And they're scum that they experience personal rejection. First of all, they're subject to public ridicule. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle, there's the word, spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul has in mind here a, a Roman victory parade, the Roman general returning from battle. And as he marched through the streets, behind him would be his soldiers. And then behind them would be the spoils of war. And at the very end of the procession, the prisoners of war, shackled in chains, were, were led. And they were led to the arena to certain death, where they would do battle with gladiators and wild animals. And as they marched along the streets, the general and the soldiers would be cheered and applauded, and the poor prisoners would be taunted and jeered. Their heads were hung low, for, for they were sure that they were going to die. They were living under the sentence of death. And that's where God had placed the apostles, and that's where God had placed Paul. He made us a public spectacle at the end of the procession, to be ridiculed by the world, he says. Now, Paul isn't complaining. He's very conscious that God had placed him in that position, that this was God's will for him. But he wanted the Corinthians to understand that ridicule and rejection was part and parcel of the Christian's calling in the world, and they had nothing to boast about. In verse 10, he describes the apostles as fools for Christ's sake, as weak men, as disreputable men. In contrast, he describes the Corinthians as wise, as strong, and honored. Look at verse 10 again. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, but you in disrepute. We as apostles, he says, are ridiculed by the world. We are fools, considered weak and dishonored, taunted and jeered by a watching world. But you, in all your pride, 
You're trying to make yourself acceptable to the world. You're trying to make yourself honored by the world and to be attractive to the world. And that's not our position as apostles. Our position is opposite to yours. We are spectacles, publicly ridiculed. Secondly, he says we suffer physically. Look at verses 11 and 12. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, endured. When slandered, we entreat. You have become kings, he says. But kings know very little of hunger and thirst and tattered clothes and rough treatment, homelessness and hard work. But we do, he says, as apostles. This is our repeated experience. While the Corinthian believers lived like kings, the apostles lived like slaves. They knew from personal experience the words of Jesus, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They worked with their own hands to provide for their, their ministries. And when they were cursed and slandered and persecuted, they blessed. And the face of all that persecution, Paul sought to respond as Christ had instructed to do good to all who hate you and to bless those who curse you. So when they were reviled, they blessed. When they were persecuted, they endured. When they were slandered, they entreated. Abuse is counted with kind answers rather than hot words. This was the treatment, not simply of Paul, but all the apostles in the world, they suffered physically. They were publicly ridiculed. They suffered physically and they were personally rejected. Look at verse 13. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. The world hated them, despised them and rejected them. They considered them scum and refuge. On Christmas Day, the drain at the back sink uh, of our house was blocked and I had to put on the rubber gloves and go into that drain and pick out all that congealed fat and decomposing vegetables and I was retching you know as I was doing it I was, I was holding my nose and putting my hand in but I had to move closer the deeper I got you know and I was it was awful that's the way Paul says we were treated we were the scum of the earth just fit to be thrown away and trashed. You remember Paul preaching in Acts 22 and addressing the people of Jerusalem, and the people of Jerusalem said, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. Dump him, trash him, dispose of him. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 4. We were counted as religious scum, as fanatical filth. The world counted him as nothing because he gave up everything for God. So here's Paul's description of the apostles' ministry. They were publicly ridiculed. They, were, they physically suffered. They were personally rejected, the scum of all the earth. Now, do you see what Paul is doing? He is setting forth the experience of the apostles to correct this aberrant thinking of the Corinthians. The problem was their pride. They were trying to bolster themselves, to lift themselves up, to make themselves appear impressive to the world. 
And they had adopted the thinking of the world in order to promote themselves. They were following their favorite preachers. They were practicing exactly the things that the world practiced. They were self-sufficient. I have all that I want, verse 10. They thought they had everything they needed. They became rich. They were living like kings. And Paul sets before them the life and the ministry of the apostles to show that what they were thinking and what they were doing was the very antithesis of the calling that the apostles had received. And of course, that's true of Christ. They were following in Christ, uh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Was he not a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Was he not despised and rejected by men, did they not take him and, and crucify him? Now, if Christ and the apostles encountered this kind of reaction, should we not expect it in our world? Are we really surprised when the world seeks to marginalize us because of our position on marriage and children and morality? Are, are we really surprised at that? This, that's always the way the world has reacted to those who stand for truth. What's the lesson in all of this? Well, we need to understand that this isn't heaven, that heaven is something that's going to come and has yet to be realized. We need to see the danger of a, an over-realized eschatology that we expect the blessings of heaven here and now. The, the whole idea of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know, that if you, you trust God, that he will prosper you, and you, you must never get ill, and you, you, you will, uh, I don't know how they get around this, uh, that you will never die because everyone dies. But that kind of thinking runs contrary to the teaching. It's as if the New Testament hasn't been written. I don't know how people can embrace that kind of teaching. Peter says, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as if something strange was happening to you. This is what life is like living in a fallen world. The mystic who believes that every day with Jesus should be sweetness and light and should be a, an ever-flowing stream of uninterrupted fellowship. Who says so? We're living in a fallen world. The man who has embraced that false notion of perfectionism where through a second experience of the Spirit you can be lifted into a higher plane of holiness and sin will be eradicated from your life. That's the promise of heaven. Or through a second experience of the Spirit that you can be lifted onto a new plane of worship and you can enjoy the fullness of the worship that the angels have in heaven here on earth. Without the distractions of a fallen mind and a, a fallen nature. Or the Northern Ireland evangelical who, when things go wrong in their life, they run about like headless chickens wondering what they've done wrong to displease the Lord or where their faith is. That they, they lose a loved one or they're diagnosed with cancer and they say, well, how can a good God allow this to happen to me? Well, it happens. Because this isn't heaven. And one day we will be in heaven and he will wipe every tear from our eye. But not yet. 
It's this tension of living between the now and the not yet. And we're living in the now and the not yet has yet to come. I thank God that we can rejoice that our names, as Jesus said, are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we can rejoice because great is our reward in heaven. But it's in heaven. It's in heaven. It's not here. Could it be that you're discouraged and frustrated, maybe flabbergasted at the difficulties that you're facing because you have an over-realized eschatology? You think that because you're a Christian, you should never encounter these things in the world. Well, you're going to encounter them. Let's be, be realistic. You're living in a fallen world. But the promise is that one day he will wipe every tear, every tear from your eye. Every tear. What makes you cry? What makes you weep? What makes you shed tears? Every, every tear on that great and glorious day of the Lord will be wiped from your eyes, but not here. And maybe I'm talking to somebody this morning and you're not a Christian. And you think to yourself, well, you know, if I became a Christian, you know, everything would just work out. Everything would fall into place and I would, it would be an end to all my pain and suffering and struggles and depression and heart problems. And No, 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 no. You will have somebody to help you through, somebody to carry those burdens with you, to share those burdens with you. But I don't want to be like some shady used car salesman and tell you that if you embrace Christ and you come to Christ, all your problems are going to end. They're not going to end. You're going to be the scum of the world. But you will have somebody to help you, to carry you. You will have grace to sustain you through and ultimately, one day, all your trials and difficulties will pass away because your light and momentary troubles here, says Paul, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And one glimpse of the blessed face of the Lord Jesus will more than compensate for all the hurts and the bruises and the heartaches that you have experienced in this life. The problem identified, they were just full of themselves. They were full of pride. The principles violated, the teaching of Scripture, the nature of grace, and the hope of heaven. They were suffering from an over-realized eschatology. And the problem illustrated, Paul takes the apostles and he sets the apostles before them and the, the difficulties that they encountered. And he says, this is life in the real world. This is what life is like as a Christian. You're going to cry. Your heart's going to be broken. You're going to be rejected by men. You're going to be marginalized by society. But a day is coming when you will see Jesus. And every tear will be wiped from your eye. Amen.